Hello, this is FTW with Imad Khan, part of the .esports podcast network. I'm Imad Khan of Tom's Guide. 2021 was an interesting year for esports. The first part of the year was quiet, with COVID still raging and vaccination programs getting off the floor. But as the year progressed, some players were banned, others were unbanned, and an entire company saw an industry-wide reckoning. To break down the year in esports for 2021, joining me is investigative lead, Jacob Wolf. Jacob, thank you so much for coming on the show. Thank you for having me as always, Amada. I appreciate it. Yeah, of course. So, Jacob, uh, January and February were a little quiet, but it did see Ryan Gutex Gutierrez getting his PogChamp emote banned from Twitch. Let's break it down really quickly. Why did PogChamp get banned, and what does it mean for Twitch's cultural enforcement, at least throughout 2021? You know, I think this is part of an ongoing situation with Twitch, even up until like the past week, right? That we were just talking about this before we started recording. Mm -hmm. uh, Twitch is got a really complex history to deal with. And this sort of highlights it, right? Gutex for context is one of those like very early on esports guys in the fighting game community, uh, very well known in that community and sort of his, what happened in terms of him being removed as that emote is because he made a tweet that was insensitive about the storming of the United States Capitol on January the 6th. Mm -hmm. um, and simp and very quickly, uh, they actioned to change it, and it's since been uh, changed to the Komodo Dragon uh, emote that existed otherwise. So mm -hmm. um, the, you know, PogChamp just generally is a, a really sort of well-known emote. I mean, it's one of those things that you, like, can't go somewhere in the gaming world without sort of hearing someone say pog or whatever it may be right it's sort of part of the vernacular um but gutex is sort of it, it wasn't just the the i think that was the straw that broke campbell's back but also like if you've kept up with his feed or anything else he's doing he's also sort of uh spread misinformation about covid and you know pushed anti-vaccination conspiracies sort of you know various different parts of the right-wing uh, far right-wing agenda um that's fine I, i'm sort of one of those people that like you know i definitely personally don't agree with a lot of what he has said and and what he said about january 6th was particularly frustrating in a lot of different ways mm -hmm. uh, however on i think twitch has had this really difficult time moderating a lot of different things over the years and this was another one where it was just like all right well you just have to just take his emote off the platform like, you know, you don't want him to be a representative of your community and what he stands for when this is the type of things he's talking about on Twitter. Yeah, it definitely seems that the people, the the faces that in invariably become, you know, part of the culture of Twitch, they then have to kind of PR train themselves and be like, okay, if I want to remain this emote or this major celebrity on Twitch, I need to abide by a certain set of rules. And, you know, in... Gutierrez's case, it, it, these were rules that he did not believe in, that he felt were an infringement on his beliefs or his freedom of speech um, or his ability to just be a caustic individual at times uh, online. And, I, you know, we were talking about this right before the show about uh, Hassan Piker, who also was, uh, I guess, temporarily banned on Twitch for saying the word cracker and um, essentially how maybe that was seen as a not not just an offensive term, but an offensive term to the level in which like a punishment had to be given. And it, it does seem that like Twitch ha has been trying to deal with these like multiple forces within American politics. Yeah. 
um, that deals with, you know, things that might become big culture point issues for uh, maybe you how you describe people who more closely align to the left. And then same on the right, you know, maybe on the left, there's uh, there would be great outrage for saying, like, let's say the N word. Um, and it seems that maybe the, the right has also uh, co-opted that kind of similar terminology or uh, I guess ideology in regards to the the word cracker and I maybe it, it, it's it's just put this company in a very odd position from time to time I don't think they're alone though you know I used mm-hmm. to work at the Walt Disney Company the owners of ESPN and this is a company ESPN is a company that frequently is accused of sort of being uh left-leaning and, and you know you see tons of people in Facebook comments and Twitter comments about you know get politics off my screen when anything vaccinated vaccination related comes <laughs> up or anything, you know, as simple as that talking about, you know, what's going on right now. I've seen it the past few days and uh, people talking about what's going on in the NBA and the NFL, which where there's massive COVID outbreaks and people are talking right. about vaccinations and Stephen A. Smith, the anchor uh, was also tested positive for COVID and tons of people, you know, Oh, well, does the vaccine work now? Like it, you know, it's such a, there's so much vitriol online. I, I think that the thing is, is when you're one of those companies that, you know, I would describe, uh, I would describe like ESPN as moderate left. I would describe sort of uh, Twitch a little bit more on the progressive side of things. And when I think sort of at the top of a lot of these corporations, when you are a public service that people use and you want to be open to everyone, that you have to, you feel like you almost have to over-index. So using the word cracker is on the same level of someone being, you know, sort of inciting violence about January 6th. That, I don't think they are the same thing personally, um, but I feel like Twitch is one of those platforms and one of those companies, given how sort of front-facing they are, they have to feel like they have to kind of play both sides of the ball um, mm-hmm. in a lot of different ways, and that's kind of how we've ended up in the situation we're in now. Yeah, and these are like some difficult, sticky situations that kind of get resolved over you know long periods of time as I guess societies have their own internal discussions, whether it be at schools or universities or you know among among community groups in uh, different parts of society. Yet when it's kind of thrust into a platform that you know reaches millions of people on any given day, they're like, okay, I guess we have to make a decision on this right now, and then that decision yeah. is just met with a lot of fervor, and you know it, it does put. The, the 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 team over at Twitch <laughs> in some awkward situations, um, but you know I let's let's move on to March and you know let's jump straight into the investigation that both you and uh, Kevin Hit from the Esports Observer did regarding Joshua Mullins and how he nearly swindled his way into the LCS. So very quickly, give us a bit of a recap on to what that story was and sure. what has developed throughout the year since. Sure. So Joshua Mullins is a 21-year-old man who, uh, from the North Georgia mountains. When he was a teenager, he became a, sort of this master forger. Uh, he's very, and we reference this in the story, he reminded some of the people who ultimately caught him in his crimes and also prosecutors, reminded them a lot of Frank Abagnale, the, uh, who was portrayed by Leonardo DiCaprio in uh, the movie Catch Me If You Can, but is also a real person. Uh, who had sort of his own criminal escapades. Joshua Mullins sort of shares somewhat of a similar story. He would forge bank documents. He would use other people's social security numbers to apply for lines of credit. Um, At one point, he took a fake settlement document into 
this uh, small business that did loans and attempted to use it as um, or a court settlement to use it as a sort of guarantee to be able to get a loan. His mother was actually present with him for that. And the sort of the crux of all of this is uh, he started doing this in esports primarily when he was a teenager. So before his 18th birthday, he was attempting to scam people in esports out of $42 million, making promises of investments and all sorts of things. Uh, Kevin and I have tracked him for the past couple of years, uh, all boiling down to the moment that this was published in which we got to interview some of the people involved, including uh, an officer named uh, Tennessee investigator by the name of Jeff Bryden, who I got to spoke to at the end of our time at the investigation. Um, and really is just this story of uh, massive proportions that a lot of people just did not know about. You know, I heard from like some long time mid-level challenger semi-pro league of legends people uh when it got published but other than that a lot of people didn't know who this guy was and i mm -hmm. think that that's kind of really interesting um so uh, what's happened since is in april i believe he was convicted um on multiple counts of identity theft and fraud uh he has been sentenced to 10 years in jail he will also be prosecuted, and that's in Georgia, um, near his hometown or not far from his hometown. He will be tried again in Tennessee, um, and he's uh, in Tennessee. He's under the microscope for a couple different things. Um, one, he allegedly wrote a fake check to buy an Audi automobile. Um, in another case, he impersonated a lawyer to a young single mother who was in a custody battle with her ex-husband, um, so much to the point, and that's the opening of the story, that he went with her to serve her uh, ex-husband court papers that actually weren't real, that he had created, um, that were supposed to award her full custody, um, and she almost lost custody in that case. We ended up getting uh, her custody battle documents or her and her ex-husband's custody battle documents um, via public records request, which documented some of this. And um, he, at that time, I believe he was 17 when he did that and he impersonated a lawyer. Um, very just fascinating sort of his story. It's, it's something that, I mean, we've, we've had some outreach from people in the film industry and it's, it's not come to anything yet at this point, but it's one of those things that I like could definitely see being in a movie when I was writing that piece, it very much struck me that way. Hmm, what a wild story. Good job. Good job on uh, hunting that down, Jacob. Thank you. Um, but let's move on to later in March when uh, Sony and Endeavor acquired Evo, the largest fighting game series, or I guess one of the most popular fighting game series in the world. Yeah, actually very pertinent um, because they just named uh, Rick Thire as their new general manager. Um, you know, Evo is a very interesting asset to me. So what's happened in since the pandemic, uh, the event was canceled. It's been canceled now twice. They've ran a series of online events since the beginning of the pandemic, but obviously not the thing, the main thing. Evo is what I would describe as the one of the most valuable and decorated tournaments in all of esports history. It dates back a very long time, and there are these events every year that regardless of if you care about the actual games or not, a lot of esports fans tune into. Hmm. Uh, the League of Legends World Championship is like that, whether you watch League on a regular basis or not. Dota 2's The International is like that as well. And Evo is that for the fighting game community. It is the one thing that is sort of the tournament to watch. And unfortunately, it 
became what I would almost describe as a distressed asset. So its founders have uh, kind of, they gave up the, a little bit of the reins, the Cannon brothers, they gave a little bit of the reins to um, Joey Cure, known as Mr. Wizard. And Joey last year was accused of sexual misconduct. Um, and the founders now run a studio that is part of Riot Games, building a fighting game inside of Riot Games. They were acquired. And the guy sort of in charge of running the ship was promptly let go um, because of all the misconduct allegations. So here you have like one of the most historic things in esports history in a position where it doesn't have anyone at the helm running it. And mm -hmm. at least other than, you know, the few people that sort of are important, like Mark Mann and Chris Siglia, um, who are, you know, very notable in the fighting game community and do a very good job at what they do, but the main guy's out. And so Sony and Endeavor, I think, see sees this opportunity to take this asset that has a lot of history. I mean, Sony has been very involved themselves in sort of propping up the fighting game community. I mean, the Capcom Cup has been a uh, the Sony experience before. Sony, like, they have a... I'm forgetting the exact name of it. It's basically an end-of-the-year Sony showcase, and it was there a handful, or not a handful, but a few times. Sony itself um, is sort of the uh, official, official content or console provider of um, a lot of the events that take place for Street Fighter every year as well. And so Sony has been a company that has definitely been involved in the fighting community for or fighting game community for some amount of time. And I think that they saw this opportunity alongside Endeavor, which who, who by the way, um, are you know no small little company. It's not just Sony Asterisk Endeavor. Uh, Endeavor is a massive company. They're one of the they are the owners of one of the biggest talent agencies in the world. Um, and additionally, uh, they are uh, they are also the owners of the UFC um, and acquired the UFC a few years ago. Mm -hmm. So this is sort of, you know, two major companies teaming up to create this joint venture that then acquired Evo and are now rebuilding it. And then as of today, we're recording on the 21st of December, um, named Rick Thayer, the founder and operator of Combo Breaker is its new general manager for Evo, which right. I, I think is a fantastic hire. If you're going to go pluck somebody, do, do somebody with a good reputation and someone who can actually build up a really successful event, that, that's a fantastic hire in my opinion. Yeah, and he also works at Twitch for a period of time, so it's like he's yes. kind of been on both sides, on the streaming side and on the tournament organizing side. He'll be very good for them, in my opinion, long term. He knows mm -hmm. how to run a tournament. He knows uh, how to broadcast one. He really is a very, he's one of those few people that you look at in the fighting game community that is very well, uh, well-rounded at highest level. And the only other person that strikes me as that is Alex DeBailey, who yeah. uh, I think would uh, not want to leave his current duties and what he's doing. Um, but you know, the Rick is leaving Twitch to take this job. And I think that it's a, actually a phenomenal fit. Mm -hmm. Let's move on to April where Nairo Nairobi Quezada was essentially unbanned from the smash scene, but is still banned on Twitch as of this recording. And essentially that, you know, he had been accused of, um, sexual misconduct with a minor, uh, namely the player, Captain Zach. And he essentially in April came out with a with his lawyers, with a massive letter that the community had read over and essentially backed Nairo on this. So it was a bit of a bizarre situation, but for all intents and purposes, uh, it seems that he's back. So Jacob, I mean, what has developed with the Nairo front? You know, it's actually really interesting. I think that there is a portion of the Smash community who are actually calling for him to be banned once again now. Um, and some of those people act in bad faith, but nonetheless, 
Um, mm-hmm. it's, it's, this, in, this is really peculiar to me. I, I got a lot of, um, uh, I got a lot of backlash for some of the things I said around this situation, um, earlier in the year, particularly the fact that the terms of the settlement were not disclosed and the people that were allowed to read the terms of the settlement allegedly, um, such as Void and, and Perry and others, um, are not particularly legal scholars. It's not like sure. this was handed over to someone who would sort of understand the minutia of what a, a minutia of what a settlement means in a situation like this, especially civil settlement, which can be uh, quite complex. Um, you know, I think that is part of the reason why if we're talking specifically about his Twitch ban, why Twitch has stayed away. I think that Twitch probably doesn't have... He said he was going to make some sort of appeal to them and send those documents along. I don't think we've heard much about sort of where that's at. Um, mm-hmm. But I think unless Twitch can prove without a shadow of a doubt that nothing's wrong here, that they are just going to steer clear. This is, seems very precautionary from Twitch and par for the course um, in the way that they behave and sort of separating themselves from uh, potentially controversial creators. Um, you know, I... I Personally, don't really have much to say here. You know, I, I've covered Nairo for a long period of time. I covered Captain's X. Well, um, mm-hmm. I've actually covered a, a few of the smashers who have been accused uh, and commentators who have been accused of sexual misconduct. Um, all I can say is that it's just it's just sad that uh, this was allowed to happen in any any type of way, not just Nairo, but the entire situation with the Smash community that happened last year and sort of everything that we've seen this year about some of these people attempting to come back despite you know, admitting in some cases to allegations of misconduct. Uh, it, you know, <laughs> to use the Spider-Man quote with great power becomes great responsibility. I'm not necessarily sure everyone uh, participating in the Smash community understood the responsibility of the power and the fame that they had. Um, mm. And that's really sad. And I, and I don't want to generalize. There are plenty of good people in the Smash community, um, but it's been a really difficult year for that community. And, and um, I hope in 2022 when events hopefully come back more frequently and people get to see each other that things get better because I, I have a soft spot in my heart for smash and it's been really sad to watch it over the past 18 months and, and see what's happened uh, to this community since it came out how many people at the, at the top of it were um, misusing their power. Hmm. Well, speaking of, I guess, great power, I guess in this case, great powers in May saw the Epic versus Apple trial. And uh, I know that this was covered extensively. And while this was more about Apple's App Store, it did reveal some interesting tidbits about uh, Epic Games and uh, and Fortnite. You know, in this particular case, I think a lot of people's expectations were really high, mine included in terms of what this means for antitrust in this country. So one thing you'll hear from a lot of people is that the antitrust law is outdated uh, and that it is not form-fitted to affect and properly regulate some of the biggest tech companies based in the United States, including Apple. For context unfamiliar with this case, for those unfamiliar with this case, uh, last end of last summer, 2020, uh, Epic put in a third-party payment system into their Fortnite iOS app, and they did the same with their Android app in the Google Play Store, um, but they started with iOS. And they were promptly kicked off of Apple's App Store uh, for violating Apple's policies. Apple, for what they would argue would be security reasons, makes you go through the App Store to purchase in-game purchases of any kind. They also take what... Uh, Epic and some of their peers would call, such as Basecamp and Spotify, uh, an app tax, 
which is a 30% cut of those revenues. This case kind of comes at a time where there's a change in the government. Uh, you see that since Joe Biden and his administration came into office earlier this year, that there's been a harder crackdown on antitrust or that it's kind of building up to that moment. You know, you've seen lawsuits filed from different parts of the government against some of the big tech companies, Facebook, uh, Amazon, Apple, and Google. I've seen countless, countless, and many of them seem useless at this point, um, trials, or sorry, hearings with Congress. People like Senator Amy Klobuchar are doing a lot of good uh, work here to do some antitrust reform. I think she gets a lot of deserved props. And this case was sort of one of the first times that it's sort of a modern issue. You know, it's, app stores have not existed all that long. iOS is still a relatively young product compared to some of the other things that antitrust has regulated before. It's one of the first times you've seen it taken to task. Um, Apple has been in antitrust fire for something that happened on the uh, iBooks store. Um, but this is really, this was sort of a hallmark case. Um, along the way, we did learn a lot. We learned a lot about sort of who lies where uh, from, you know, we had an Xbox executive uh, testify. We had various different people sort of support mostly Epic more than Apple. Epic got a lot of love from people across the gaming and technology industries in this case. And Apple did not. Uh, Apple is sort of this big bad wolf. I think what ultimately, you know, I covered this trial every day for a month, basically. The one thing that I thought coming out of it was that Epic actually did a terrible job arguing their case. Hmm. Um, I think the merits of the case actually were particularly interesting, and I think they were really valid. Um, and, you know, ultimately the the injunction that was granted later in the year, which we'll talk about when we get there uh, in this outline, but um, sort of showed that. I mean, it was like a very minor win for Epic um, in the grand scheme of things, and it, that's why both of them, I think, both... Apple and Epic are uh, unhappy with how things ended. Uh, Epic wanted more and Apple wanted uh, less, obviously. Um, mm -hmm. But yeah, I think Epic tried to make this about, oh, these like indie developers are getting smashed by Apple. And then you're like, you're not an indie developer, though. You're a multi-billion dollar company yourself. So was, I, I wrote in one piece at one point that it was a trillion dollar company versus a billion dollar company. And uh, <laughs> it's hard to kind of garner sympathy when you're that wealthy. Um, you know, uh, especially when we started saying like income statements and things of the like, how much money Fortnite makes for Epic. And, you know, going on with May, there was also Sinatra's like kind of surprise investigation and suspension. Well, I guess the investigation had started earlier, but the surprise suspension. And, you know, I think some people were, um, thinking that he might get banned after, you know, moving over from Overwatch League to Valorant, but, you know, quickly give us a recap of Sinatra and then his kind of return to uh, Valorant and the success of Sentinels. Sure. So uh, Sinatra was accused by his ex-girlfriend of sexual misconduct. Um, it, I remember the evening that the document she published came out, um, very jarring audio tape uh, that was released or audio recording that was released in the, in this case. Um as things of this nature usually happen in gaming, there were there was massive vitriol on both sides. So there were uh, there was a lot of support for her, um, but there was an equal amount of people just uh, 
maybe ruining her life is a is an overstatement, but certainly giving her far more grief um, mm. in a situation that you know deserved sort of its its look. Um, I at the end, uh, what Riot got Sinatra for was that he he and Sentinels didn't cooperate in the investigation. Um, that uh, did not cooperate in the investigation as much as he should have, um, and sort of what they were obligating him for. And we have not seen him play um, professionally, at least at the highest level, since this happened. Uh, this this has effectively been the, even with his suspension expired at this point, this has effectively been the end of his pro Valorant playing career. And this is someone who previously is the MVP of the Overwatch League and then transitioned into Valorant, was this massive high-profile star. And uh, he's remained a very controversial figure because uh, Riot did not really come to any conclusion about what happened. Um, they just essentially made a suspension because he didn't cooperate and then kind of called it a day. And mm. um, I think there's a lot of unresolved feelings about this entire situation. Um, I think that it's, from our reporting on the situation, it seems like it was not pushed as far in the legal system, um, in the justice system, as far as it could have been. Um, and uh, his ex-girlfriend has tweeted that she just wants to move on in life, which, you know, is respectable. Um, mm -hmm. You can you can understand where she's coming from when she says that. So, um, yeah, I, this is one of those situations where I think a lot of people um, are sort of torn. I, I think that uh, those sort of, you know, what the facts of the matter are is the situation is this is, has effectively ended his pro playing career, but he still remains a very high-profile streamer on Twitch. <laughs> and well, I guess there, there's not a real great way to transition to this next story in June, but this was definitely something that caught the kind of like took over the entire month. And that was Amaranth and the hot tub meta and all these streamers on Twitch that were um, definitely skirt, not definitely playing very close to the line with Twitch's, uh, I guess, rules on um, decency to the point where Twitch had to actually start its own separate category for for hot tub streamers called like beaches um and you know that it, it was it just kind of a fad or did, i mean what ultimately happened with the hot tub meta that took over twitch yeah i think this is kind of harkens back to what we were talking about at the beginning of this episode in yeah. terms of what happened with gutex and what's happened with hassan and others twitch is really struggling to find the the precise line of how it regulates content um it in this situation, it's very dangerous to over-index, right? A woman, let's just call it what it is, like a woman show or a woman's cleavage being on the screen is not sexually explicit in nature, right? Like that, and therefore, and also that implies that uh, a woman is not decent for showing that, which is also just a very terrible slippery slope to go down. Um, and so Twitch has sort of had to deal with all of this because at one point it was certainly uh one of the biggest some of the biggest content on twitch at any given time um yeah. people in hot tubs and this is you know actually ironically um twitch is twitch spawned out of justin tv where content like this uh sort of the irl or you know just people doing whatever the hell they want while live streaming content was very popular and they have now tried to they got rid of all of that when they migrated to twitch They've slowly been integrating more and more of that content over time. Clearly, there's demand for it. Um, and I think that they're just in this 
sort of pickle and that's where the situation's been left they're in this sort of pickle where like okay well you know we shouldn't be unless something you know very inappropriate porn or uh, like explicit porn um or sort of you know whatever it may be like nude content it, unless it's like very clearly sexually explicit it's really hard to regulate what you're going to do and i think that is what twitch struggled with long term and that was very seen in sort of the hot quote-unquote hot tub meta situation this summer it was definitely an interesting time and you know it also kind of links back we're not going to really talk about it much on the show um but in august where only fans had its own kind of like strange reckoning which also affected some some of the few twitch streamers that also had only fans accounts but going on to july we have to talk about the u.s department of justice opening an investigation into overwatch league i mean really july was a crazy month yeah it's this is one that when Liz and I were reporting on the situation it was really intriguing to me. We were just talking about sort of the ramp up of antitrust uh, in the United States under the Biden administration and sort of how that's affecting the big tech companies. Well, in the case of Activision Blizzard and the Overwatch League and Call of Duty League, um, there has been sort of this soft salary cap. It doesn't exist anymore, actually. It was abolished uh, later in the year. Mm-hmm. Um, but at the time... The concern was that they were potentially capping a uh, player's ability to earn because they had this thing where you had to pay this, you know, pretty uh, high, basically luxury tax if you spent over the soft salary cap. And you could do it, but you had to basically for every dollar extra spent, you also had to um, pay the league almost like a fine um, right. for each dollar spent. Um, and so this is a particularly tricky situation. Obviously, unionization is not a thing in the esports community in the same way that it is in pro sports. And so there uh, isn't necessarily a way for the Overwatch League players to fight back. So the Department of Justice opened an inquiry into the situation and started investigating, interviewed people, um, various different people involved with the Overwatch League and uh, previously involved with the Overwatch League and started to learn more about this. And eventually, I think sort of the pressure uh, came tumbling in. We'll talk about Activision Blizzard's other legal issues. And uh, we saw the competitive uh, balance tax and um, this luxury t- or competitive balance tax and the soft sour cap go out the window. Well, and then later in July was probably the biggest story, not only in esports, but across, you know, gaming and the markets and business. And it was the uh, CFEH's lawsuit against. Activision Blizzard and its abuse of its employees. Um, I don't even know where to start on this, but if you could give like the briefest of recaps possible, and then we'll catch player or catch listeners up on some of the most recent developments that happened uh, last month. Sure. So the California Department of Fair Employment and Housing Labor, sort of one of the largest labor bodies in in the state, um, that represents and investigates uh, various different issues with. Um, workplace misconduct, among other things, uh, in the state, filed a lawsuit against Activision Blizzard. There were a lot of different claims in here. Um, the, really, the big one was that uh, women predominantly are, mis- are allegedly mistreated at Activision Blizzard. Um, the, it was very clear the DFEH had spoken to many women um, who had worked there before or currently work there. And uh, everything that's happened since has been sort of chaotic. You're right in saying, I think this is the largest gaming story of 2021. Um, and, you know, we saw Riot Games go through its own reckoning a few years ago, and this is Activision Blizzard's turn, uh, as awful as that is to say, but it's no secret gaming has uh, issues with uh, misogyny and sexism 
Um, and that was on full display here and sort of everything else that's come out since from testimonials on social media from some of those employees to uh, further legal filings. And Jacob, e even recently, like there have been more developments regarding Activision Blizzard, uh, you know, with people leaving the company saying that they would stay and then leaving, you know, just a month later. And then even Bobby Kotick himself, the CEO, hiding a lot of this stuff from the board itself, which is I mean, I don't know if that's illegal, but that's terrible corporate governance. And I mean, a lot of people have been calling for his resignation. So, I mean, have what are have there been any developments regarding any of those things? Yeah, I mean, I think this story will spill into 2022. I, I yeah, don't definitely. think that Mr. Kodak is off the hook um, by any means. You know, kind of what what is shocking to me about so there was a massive Wall Street Journal article in November about sort of what he knew and his involvement and in things. What is most shocking to me, honestly, is what happened with Jen O'Neill. In August, uh, Jay Allenbrecht, the president of Blizzard, who seceded uh, Mike Morheim, its founder and, and longtime CEO, as sort of the company leader, left. Um, he was involved uh, with and, and sort of, uh, there was a, a video from BlizzCon years ago where Someone asked um, another developer, uh, Alex Esperani, um, if uh, why women in World of Warcraft, this was during a BlizzCon, why women in World of Warcraft always had to look like they came out of a Victoria's Secret catalog. And um, Alex Esperani and, and Jay Allen Breck mocked her about it. Mm -hmm. um, and so that that's sort of step one. But also uh, Alex Esperani and others were involved in uh, this room called the Cosby Suite, which was a annual thing at BlizzCon um, where they, again, allegedly, because they all deny this um, and sort of say it's not salacious, but uh, allegedly recruited women to get intoxicated and uh, then made sexual advances. Uh, Alex has been accused of sexual misconduct other than that as well. So what has happened since when J.L. and Brack left, uh, Bobby Kotick put in place uh, two different people to run Blizzard um, a guy named Mike Yabara, who's a former Xbox executive, who they recruited to come to Activision Blizzard. And Jen O'Neill, who previously was the head of Vicarious Visions, an Activision-owned studio that recently did the remasters of Tony Hawk Pro Skater and uh, the Crash Bandicoot series. Mm -hmm. um, they merged uh, earlier this year. They merged Vicarious Visions into Blizzard, and then they promoted her and Mike Yabara as co-leads of the company. What came out in the Wall Street Journal article in November, not only about sort of what Bobby Kotick knew and allegations against him directly, but also that when they made that promotion that she was allegedly paid less, which is an issue they were already under fire from the Department of Fair Employment and Housing for paying women less in positions equal to their male counterparts. So they did it again, allegedly. <laughs> Absolutely wild. She's left the company. She wrote a pretty scathing email that leaked to the journal um, to Activision Blizzard's legal department and her departure. Um, and I think that she, when she was appointed, a lot of people thought that it would be for the better. Um, she identifies as a part of the LGBTQ community. She, everyone I've ever spoken to thinks very highly of her. Um, and she was sort of seen as this breath of fresh air. And then she was out the door within a couple months hmm. because of issues uh, that she faced herself. So, yeah. And then sort of the other or other things in the journal article, um, there's an alleged voicemail that Bobby Kotick threatened to kill an assistant. 
um, various things about how much he knew about what was going on and chose not to act, like you said, withholding information from his board. Just this entire situation is, uh, it's, it's a nuclear bomb. I mean, it's been a nuclear bomb in the gaming community all year, and I believe it will go on into 2022. Um, I personally will be very surprised if, if Bobby Kotick is CEO of Activision Blizzard by next summer. Yeah, yeah, 2022, I mean, I mean it, just, it just seems that a lot of... What's happening at Activision Blizzard is not limited to Activision Blizzard in, like, the uh, corporate governance world, right? There's definitely no. a lot of buddy-buddyism going on and uh, a lot of, like... Uh, I don't know, bro, uh, maybe bro culture is not the right word, but something similar to it. Um, and I am very curious as to how the story continues to develop throughout 2022. You know, quickly touching on August, Krafton, the creators of PUBG, went public for a lot of money. Yeah, this is one of those. And we've seen a few gaming companies file for IPO this year. Um, I'm usually quite pessimistic about the esports companies that file for IPO. Um, mm-hmm. But uh crafton actually has a really interesting sort of scalable business right so they i mean pubg mobile is very big in asia um as a form of entertainment on cell phones and while you know i think a lot of people pubg numbers have fizzled out in the west for pc i think that there is growth here i mean you could argue maybe this is a little bit overvalued but certainly this is one of those companies that uh Every time you see them in the news, they're trying something new and they're continuing to expand. They're developing new products, acquiring things. It's one of those companies that I don't think is going to go away. It is, I believe it is the largest gaming studio in all of South Korea, which is part of the other reason it's notable that it went public for uh, so much money um, on such a high valuation. Mm-hmm. Um, it's actually sort of harkens back. The other thing I think we're forgetting to mention is uh, Face Clan also is going public via SPAC um, or is public via SPAC now. Um, mm-hmm. you know, it's, it's interesting whether I, I think gaming companies have a really good case, especially if they like own intellectual property, you know, they created a game or whatever they may have done can make a really interesting case. Whereas esports teams, I'm not so sold on that being a viable business for public trading, but you know, uh, I guess the jury's out on that. And then in September, we saw probably one of the most bizarre stories hit, uh, all news channels. And that was. China and the Chinese Communist Party essentially banning kids under the age of 18 from playing video games for more than three hours a week. You know, one hour on Friday, one hour on Saturday, and one hour on Sunday. And that was from earlier in the year when China had officially declared esports like a a recognizable sport. So has there been any kind of like fallout from China's ban on younger players from playing video games? Well, the one thing about China is that it's hard to get information out of China unless you live Mm -hmm. there. Um, and there are not too many esports journalists that live there that would be reporting on this type of story. Um, so personally, I haven't seen a lot of fallout. I think that there is growing concern that there may be, right? Because some of the best stars in all of esports are young Chinese men. And, um, you know, if they're not able to play when they are children, uh, will that be the same? Will it be a viable career for them? Um, or is it something they have to adopt later in life? Um so we haven't really seen sort of the effects of this because it's too early. I mean, the ban only happened in September. Um, but I do think that people are really worried about what this may signal at, at a broader level. This this very much felt at the time like it was an under-discussed story because it has potential large repercussions. Yeah, and, you know, it's uh, I, one thing I've uh, learned in my research is that all it requires is an ID card to log in, and lots of kids just use their parents' ID cards. Uh, yep. So it's, it's like the enforcement mechanism seems to be 
somewhat suspect unless the CCP figures out some other way. Uh, and, you know, moving on to October, we saw Worlds and the International happen. And of course, you know, this is still in the midst of a pandemic. Uh, any notable bits of news from either event? You know, the League of Legends World Championship continues to outperform itself in a way that is uh, really impressive from a viewership perspective. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I they're they're planning for it to be very, very big in 2022. Uh, they're coming back to North America. They're touring around uh, various parts of the United States, Mexico and Canada. Um, I think that uh, the fact that they've had to do it twice in the pandemic and they but they've successfully pulled it off in a bubble environment, essentially. It's really intriguing. Um, you know, Riot did a bunch of their events in Reykjavik, Iceland this year. Um, but last year they did them in China and they had to pivot this year from doing the event in China once again to doing it in Reykjavik over concerns of visas um, and people being able to come back to their home countries as well. Um, so Worlds was uh, once again successful. I don't think that that's all surprising. I mean, League of Legends is the biggest esport in the world for a reason. Um, the International is... Uh, there were there was a lot of controversy around sort of how close to the best they played it. They they waited to make certain changes and not allow uh, a crowd to come sort of the last minute because obviously the Delta variant ramped up and uh, was infecting people you know quite rapidly again. It's it's interesting to think that that was only a couple months ago, considering how panicked everyone is about Omicron now and rightfully so because it's spreading like wildfire. Um, but uh, yeah, you know the international is these are the two events that. I'm kind of most excited for in 2022 to come back in person because they sort of deserve to be. They are the, the hallmark ones of the year. Um, but yeah, I, I mean, continue to perform kind of as expected. Both had very high viewership numbers and, you know, are sort of the, the two of the main staples of the esports scene. So good to see them both. So, Jacob, we have to finish off the this episode with the last esports event, major esports event of the year, which was the Valorant Champions Tour which saw its conclusion. And, you know, Valorant had a very successful 2021. Uh, so let's actually talk about Valorant more generally. You know, how was its 2021 and what does it look like for its 2022? Yeah, so Valorant came out in 2020 and it very quickly became sort of one of the games to watch, right? Like it it got a lot of nods uh, last year from a lot of different people because um, it sort of blends uh, some of the things that people like of a tactical shooter like Counter-Strike um with sort of a more accessible thing less you know less gore etc um yeah. you know it had very few esports events last year because of covid and you know we didn't have vaccination in 2020 so there wasn't a more safe i mean the vct had a lot of issues this this year with uh covid outbreaks and having to cancel events etc um which are well documented but the you know 2020 was basically a whole year for this game uh, from an esports perspective of wait, 2021 will be the year. 2021 mm-hmm. was the year they pulled it off, um, but not without sort of a lot of all those hurdles that I mentioned. I mean, they had to can- cancel a qualifier event in Los Angeles because people were testing positive. Um, and uh, they're very lucky, in my opinion, that they got the VCT final done um, before things went sideways with Omicron. So uh, I very much think that Valorant has a really bright future in the esports community. Um, COVID be damned. Um, so I, you know, I'm I'm very optimistic things will be good. But I'm I'm really eager as well to sort of go to my first ever Valorant live event 
um, because I think it will be really exciting. It, it's a game that I think a lot of people are excited about long long term, and they just announced some of their 2022 plans, and I think that we're pretty geared up about that. And so, uh, yeah, I mean, I, I have to tip my hat to them in terms of being able to work with what they got, because I don't think 2021 was what Riot thought it was going to be um, with sort of all the vaccination rollout. I thought they, you know, people thought it was going to be a lot more simple and the world was going to be a little bit more normal, and it, of course, has not been. Mm-hmm. And yeah, you know, that, it, it is kind of an unfortunate way to kind of round out 2021, where there was a lot more optimism throughout the year. But now we're going through this Omicron wave, which is just quickly um, taking over parts of the country already. You know, uh, lots of publications. I was uh, set to go to CES in Las Vegas in early January. And uh, Tom's Guide, CNET, Engadget, all these websites have essentially pulled out of the show, which it's unfortunate that, you know, we're kind of going back to maybe what was the end of 2020 in a lot of ways. But, you know, we have vaccinations on our side. And hopefully, you know, this wave is more temporary and um, can subside a little so that all the events that we want to go to can come back. And I mean, I, you know, Jacob, you and I had the opportunity of actually reporting from a an event live over in Austin, which was a real pleasure and a lot of fun. It was just great seeing and being with people again. And, uh, you know, we... It, it was done. Everyone was fully vaccinated. And I think that there were very few um, positive cases, if any, from from that specific event. Uh, so, you know, I'm I'm definitely curious to see how things continue to progress throughout throughout uh, 2022. But Jacob, always thank you so much for coming on the show. Thank you for, you know, helping me transition this podcast from an independent venture over to dot esports. Uh, congratulations on all sec- all the success that you've had throughout 2021 and, you know, um, leaving ESPN, coming back to DOT and uh, just putting out some incredible reporting. Thank you. Thank you for having me. And it's been a pleasure. And that was FTW with Ahmad Khan, part of the DOT Esports Podcast Network. If you enjoyed the show, please rate and share. For full transcripts of the show, head on over to FTWAhmad.com. To follow Jacob and his work over at Dot Esports, you can find him at Jacob Wolf on Twitter. To follow me and my work over at Tom's Guide, you can find me at Imad on Twitter. This episode was produced by Henrique Damore and Jacob Wolf. The show's executive producer is Kevin Morris. Our research assistant is Sam Higgins. We'll be off the next week, and we'll see you back in 2022. With that, we'll catch you guys next year. <laughs>